Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 11 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Thursday, the 13th of April. And people, we're a day early because of Good Friday. So we're bringing it out uh, one day early ahead of the Easter break. Yeah, we're going to have a day off on Good Friday, see? Okay, so this week we're talking to Meta Royale of your law firm. It's a new concept in what you might call co-op law firms, and it's very, very interesting. Well, it's a very unusual business because it's Australia's first franchise law firm. It's an interesting concept because it's making legal aid, in effect, much more accessible to people who are not accustomed to dealing with lawyers. And also it's helping lawyers who don't want to work in a big corporate office. That's right. And looking back over some of the big corporate law firms, maybe that's a good idea. And then after that, we've got Saul Eslake on the housing situation, which I think, Leon, looks darker than some assessments make it out to be. It's uh, very dire. The government's on uh, between a rock and a hard place. They're, they're really struggling. Anyway, let's listen to Meta Royale. Meta Royale, uh, your law firm, this business that you set up, uh, it, it's a franchise for lawyers, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. How does it work? Well, first of all, um, we are the first law firm franchise in Australia. Mm. Um, and it really is a, you know, it's an alternative to, a tradi- to the traditional practice of law. There are various different models currently popping up. It's all about disruption, like in every other industry. So law is, um, hasn't been spared. But um, what we tried to achieve was to give lawyers an opportunity to uh, have the best of bo- both worlds, and that is, We've taken what's good in traditional practice and for people as an employee or or being part of a larger law firm and also what's best in sole practice or having your own business and combined it and then took out the hassles and the risk out of having your own business. So we're sort of a bit of a hybrid in the middle of being on your own and being part of a firm. So So at what point, uh, how close do you get to each franchise? Very, very close. We are not a franchise in a traditional sense, um, you know, it's, and, and also franchising in Australia is now and worldwide actually starting to change. But it's, um, it's a bit of a partnership approach now. And that's how we see um, us and our lawyers. So, so let me understand this. You bring in lawyers and they, what, uh, they work from home? Yes. So what's, what's happening um, is this. Um, we want to provide them with more flexibility. We want them to have the freedom to work from wherever they need to work and from wherever they want. They don't, there's no reason for lawyers to be tied to a desk anymore these days. You can work from virtually anywhere in the world. So our lawyers all work from home and the back office support, that is all the administrative work, uh, secretarial, paralegal work, uh, bookkeeping, uh, reporting, strate- you know, strategic advice, um, you know the the actual business side of things is happening at the central office, and the central office is broken uh, up into separate teams: the onshore team and the offshore team. What's the offshore team? The offshore team is um, you know more the repetitive type of work. So the um, secretarial work, the paralegal work, bookkeeping. That's, that's all. That's all outsourced overseas. That's right. Yes. So basically, a lawyer could, as long as he's qualified. And what registers a barrister or a solicitor, he can work online. Yes, absolutely. Or he can work on the road. He can work out of his car. Absolutely, absolutely. So to give you an idea, for example, uh, we have one lawyer. She's a mum. 
you know, she uh, has kids in school and kids in kinder. She's on the road quite a bit, as you would imagine, dropping them off, picking them up. So she works out of her car most of the time. Um, she's got a laptop. She logs into her files. All her files are on the cloud, as everything else is these days. We don't have paper files anymore, or we try not to as much as we can. And she just logs into the practice management system and there is all the data that she needs to work. And if she needs legal advice from somebody in an area that she's not conversant with, she can get that through the central office? She can get that through the network, yes. Yes, all our lawyers specialise in a particular field. And the reason why we chose that particular model over a more general practitioner type of model is that our target market are mums and dads and small and medium-sized businesses in the suburbs. So what we've identified that there is an acute need in the suburbs for specialised services. So let's say you have a lawyer working for you who, say, specialises in family law. Yeah. And uh, suddenly they land a case which is a uh, housing matter, a sort of a housing transaction. They have no experience there. They would come to you and uh, someone from your team of lawyers would give them advice on that? Um, they'll actually take over the client and the matter. They would take over the client and the yes. matter? Yes. So our lawyers don't practice in areas of practice that they're not familiar with. Wow. And, and that's our guarantee to the client also that, you know, they, they, um, they can access through us, they can access highly qualified, specialized lawyers at very affordable prices, though, and they're very accessible because they're in the suburbs. Nobody wants to travel into town anymore, you know. So how many lawyers do you have? We have seven currently uh, operating in Victoria. We launched nationally in November last year, and we're in discussions with quite a few people in Sydney and Brisbane at the moment. So you launched in November 2016? Nationally, yes. <laughs> so we're expecting to have in the first half of this year, we're expecting to have between probably between six and ten lawyers joining interstate. Uh, just judging by the number of people who are currently interested in, in discussions with us. Do your people get involved in court work? They do. Criminal or yes. that sort of thing? Depending on the area of practice, you know, if they practice in litigation, then um, absolutely. And um, if they practice in family law, yes, criminal law, yes, more transactional work like conveyancing, property law, you know, commercial law generally. That's more transactional. That's not court work. But yes, we do have, you know, people who do court appearances and also people who, who don't do court appearances. Yeah. And, and what, what proportion of the fees does uh, your law firm take? We take 20% of the fees that the lawyer generates. Um, and we, from various new law, this is what they call the, you know, non-traditional practices of law, uh, from the various new law models that are in Australia currently, we're the cheapest in terms of fee sharing arrangements. So most will take 30 and more from the lawyer's fees. How have you been received by the more conventional uh, law family? Look, I think... At the moment, everybody's curious to see where this is going. I think everyone was sceptical at the start because franchising has traditionally a bit of a negative connotation and they thought maybe law and franchising doesn't go very well hand in hand. So everybody was sort of sitting and waiting to see what was going to happen, probably thinking that this is not going to go anywhere. But I think people are now starting to listen up, um, you know, given our numbers and how fast we're growing. Well, one of the issues uh, in, in, uh, the, in the legal industry is uh, there's enormous disruption going on with, in terms of fees. Uh, there's downward pressure on fees at the moment. It's really going down. Clients are questioning things much more. Uh, how, do, how does uh, your law firm deal with that? 
Um, this is one of the reasons for um, the model that we have. Uh, one thing is that we've cut our overheads from a traditional bricks and mortar law firm to our model by about 82%. So this is the expenses that we're saving or our lawyers save by joining us from a traditional model point of view. So that obviously allows our lawyers to be very competitive when it comes to fees because they don't have to carry those massive overheads. But also um, our model is all based on fixed fees in all matters. So our clients, our lawyers don't time bill. They don't record time. They don't bill by the hour. Um, they will quote on a matter in a fixed fee and there is no deviation from that. So it gives the clients, you know, transparency right from the start. And it also gives the clients an opportunity to negotiate the fees for the particular matter. You know, if someone says, look, you're proposing that this will cost $10,000, but I haven't got $10,000, can we do something for five? Then the lawyer might relook at the proposal and say, okay, well, for 5000 this is what I can do. The fees are actually set by the lawyers themselves? Yes, they are. But do you have a scale of guidance for them? Look, they all talk. We don't prescribe what fees they should charge. And I think, and, and the reason for that is that each lawyer has a different level of experience. You know, they have different clients, they get different matters. So there's no one size fits all. Um, but they talk, you know, they, they will get a matter in and they'll ring other lawyers and say, look, what do you think? You know, this is what I've got. This, these are the circumstances. This is the client. And it also very much depends on the circumstances of the client and, you know, what the client wants from the lawyer. And you could do pro bono if you felt like it. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, many of our lawyers do. Where did the idea come from? Your head or, or example somewhere overseas? No, as far as I know, there is nothing overseas like it. Um, it it's actually come from my own experiences and, you know, just... N paying attention to what gaps can be still filled in today's legal environment, you know, and what are the shortcomings of the traditional model and where can we improve it? So, Obviously, the, the, the lawyers in your firm don't become partners, but I mean, where do you see your law firm developing over the next few years, given that you've only gone national in November? <laughs> um, well, actually, they are quasi-partners, the lawyers, um, because they all own a piece of the pie. So they all have their own business, but form part of a wider network. You know, it's a very non-competitive environment because everyone's already there. Everyone's already a partner, so to speak. And we regard them as such, you know, we partner with them in this. But um, look, in terms of growth, the sky is the limit. Um, we think we're going to be growing steadily at the pace of between 15 and 20 lawyers per year uh, nationally. And we're also starting to look at opportunities overseas. We've had quite a few inquiries from overseas. So, so you believe you could be operating overseas as well? Yes, absolutely. How are you on Chinese law? <laughs> Not very good. Um, but I'm sure there are people, very good people in China who are very good. <laughs> sure, and would like the business model probably. Exactly. Look, um, I don't, obviously there are major differences between jurisdictions and we don't, by now, I am a lawyer myself, but I, I wouldn't even fathom of practicing or trying to, you know, grasp all the different legislations. But um, the back office and the business structure is the same and could operate the same in every jurisdiction, no matter where it is. Absolutely. Middle Royale, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks thank very much. Thank you very much. So, as you said, Leon, a uh, fascinating concept. Absolutely. I think, I think, and I think this could be the way to go. I wouldn't be surprised if we see other franchise law firms spring up. So Meta Royale might be blazing the trail there. Yeah, it looks like that to me too, certainly. Okay, 
Sawless Lake and housing. Sawless Lake, housing affordability has become a huge issue. The Treasurer Scott Morrison has ruled out any changes to negative gearing and uh, the Coalition is split on uh, changes to the concession, uh, concessional tax arrangement. What should be done about it? Well, my long-standing view has been that competition from investors who benefit from very favourable treatment under Australia's taxation system is one of the principal reasons for the deterioration in housing affordability and the decline in home ownership rates over the last 25 or more years and therefore doing something to lessen the competition which would be first home buyers in particular face from investors is one of the things that the federal government could do if it wishes that would improve the prospects of would-be first home buyers from achieving their aspirations. It's not the only thing that the federal government could do. It's not the only thing that needs to be done in order to reverse the slide in home ownership rates, particularly among people aged from 25 to 55. But nonetheless, unfortunately, it's something that the federal government has repeatedly ruled out. And that's surprising, especially given that, as we now know, Mr Morrison and Mr Turnbull did seek to wind back what at one stage Mr Morrison had referred to as excesses in negative gearing. And he was, I understand, and particularly referring to the very large claims that are made by a minority of investors under these arrangements. Apparently, he and Mr Turnbull took a proposal to limit the amount of claims that could be made for excess of interest payments over net rental income to the budget cabinet last year, and they were overruled by their cabinet colleagues. And that, of course, then became one of the key points of differentiation between the government and the Labor Party at the last federal election. It seems to me that, that although previous governments and oppositions have been very scared about talking about negative gearing prior to the last election. The Labor Party's policy didn't seem to have cost them any votes, despite a very significant scare campaign that was run against that policy by the coalition and its supporters in the property industry. I, as I say, emphasise that this is not the only thing that needs to be done. It's not a magic bullet. There are no simple or easy solutions to the problem of housing affordability. Rather, there are many things that need to be done on both the demand and supply sides of the housing market. But scaling back Australia's almost uniquely generous taxation arrangements for property investors is, I believe, an essential part of any workable solution. The Treasurer says it's very much a supply issue and uh, the Commonwealth would have to free up more land, the states would have to free up more land. Uh, what's your view about that? Well, supply is part of the issue. The reason why house prices have risen by so much over the last 25 years in Australia is because the demand for housing has risen at a faster rate than the supply of it over a long period of time. And part of the tragedy is that government policies pursued by parties, governments of both persuasions at both the federal and state levels, as well as at the local level, have exacerbated those problems by, on the one hand, inflating demand and in the other, in many cases, constraining supply. That said, we are now seeing near record 
amounts of supply coming onto the market to the point where the Reserve Bank is now routinely warning of some of the dangers associated with uh, what they describe as potentially an excess supply of particular types of housing, notably inner city apartments. And yet, despite new housing completions running at in excess of 200,000 per annum for the last couple of years and likely for the next couple of years, housing affordability continues to deteriorate, especially in our two largest cities of Sydney and Melbourne. So uh, what that demonstrates is that although supply is important and I don't uh, detract from measures or I don't criticise measures that are designed to increase housing supply, uh, that's only working on one side of the market. And I think it would also be useful if governments, plural, were to seek to do things that moderated demand from sources other than uh, would-be first-home buyers and people seeking to trade to housing that more appropriately meets their changing needs over the course of their lifetimes. In his uh, address last week, uh, the uh, RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, also got stuck into uh, governments for not investing in transport infrastructure, which he says uh, means that uh, Sydney and Melbourne have failed to keep a lid on their housing prices. Uh, And that's absolutely right to do that because transport policy is an important dimension of housing policy. One of the reasons why house prices have risen so steeply in the inner areas of Sydney and Melbourne is because as a result of decades of neglect, of investment in both public transport and arterial roads to the more rapidly growing outer suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne in particular, people who have the economic capacity to make the choice have increasingly preferred to spend a larger proportion of their income on housing so as to avoid spending a larger proportion of their time in commuting. And that helps explain the very steep price gradients that you now see in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. And that is a key element of the deterioration in housing affordability and the decline in home ownership rates over the last 25 years. Had governments invested more in both public transport and arterial roads, we wouldn't have solved the housing affordability problem, we would still have one, but it might not have been as bad as it's become. Now, uh, the uh, OECD has forecast that Australia is at great risk of a housing bust, and there's been all sorts of predictions about that happening for many for many years. I mean, where do you see that heading? Well, as you say, these predictions have been made by many people for many years without them ever having come to pass. I guess in some ways it's a bit like predictions of a stock market crash. Uh, there will no doubt come a year at some point when something like that happens and the people who've been saying that will it will happen every year for the past X years will briefly look like heroes until someone goes back and examines their forecasting track record over a longer period of time. Looking at those instances where house prices have fallen sharply in countries overseas, and the three examples which best come to mind are the US, Ireland and Spain, we can, I think, learn something about the combination of circumstances that might precipitate that kind of outcome here in Australia. The first thing is that there is almost always a trigger 
which is usually a sharp increase in interest rates or some other kind of economic shock. It's not at all obvious to me that there's going to be a sharp increase in interest rates in Australia anytime soon. Second, you almost always need to have, as part of a big fall in house prices, a large number of forced sellers. That is, people who are forced or who choose to sell at whatever price willing buyers are prepared to pay because they either can no longer or no longer wish to meet the financial obligations associated with continuing to own their dwellings. In the US, for example, that was the result of the expiry of all the teaser or honeymoon uh, provisions associated with the um, non-standard mortgages that became a feature of the US housing market in the early 2000s and which initially had seen a sharp rise in US home ownership rates between 1995 and 2005 of almost 9 percentage points. And for many people in that condition, in that situation, who found themselves facing sharply higher interest rates on their mortgages as US rates rose and the initial honeymoon rates and privileges uh, wore off, it was an entirely rational decision to walk away, not least because in the US, most mortgages uh, were non-recourse. The banks couldn't go after defaulting borrowers for any additional assets or income that they might have in circumstances where the value of their loan outstanding exceeded the value of the property that they had bought. And the third condition that we can see applying in overseas countries that have experienced property crashes is that those four sellers have been selling into an oversupplied market. That is one where the supply of housing has increased at a much faster rate than the demand for it over a longer period of time. That was also true in the US, but even more spectacularly in countries like Ireland and Spain, where the housing bubbles were quantity bubbles as well as price bubbles. Now, how does any of that apply here in Australia? Well, as I said, in the first instance, it doesn't seem likely that there will be a sharp increase in interest rates in Australia anytime soon and possibly not for a very long time given the outlook for inflation and for unemployment and given the Reserve Bank's awareness that it doesn't need to increase interest rates very much in order to have a meaningful impact on the spending patterns of Australian households who are now carrying record amounts of household debt. Second, Australian households are who have, for the most part, used the period of falling interest rates to get ahead of their contractual repayment schedules by keeping up their periodic repayments as interest rates have come down and thus paid off their principal at a faster rate than they have to. That means that if interest rates do go up, and I emphasise that when they do, it's more likely to be gradual than sudden, they will have the capacity to absorb, in most cases, those increases in mortgage rates without any significant dislocation and especially without becoming forced sellers. And in addition, Australian mortgages being full recourse, and given that uh, defaulting on a mortgage still carries a degree of social stigma in Australian culture, it's unlikely that we're going to have the sort of wave of forced selling that was a key part of the housing market crash in the United States. And then thirdly, the despite the recent pickup in housing supply, in most Australian 
big cities, there is still a shortfall of uh, housing supply relative to underlying demand. Now, in some cities, that's shifted, for example, in Perth and Darwin, and the Reserve Bank is warning that Melbourne and Brisbane in particular could see over the next couple of years a oversupply of inner city apartments emerge, although no one's suggesting that we're going to see an oversupply of more traditional detached dwellings. It is possible that if we keep adding in excess of 200,000 new dwellings a year to the housing stock by 2020, for example, the balance between supply and demand may well have shifted to the point where uh, there could be some overall decline in house prices. But again, I see no compelling reason to think that we're going to see a dramatic fall in house prices of the sort that did so much damage to the economies of the US or countries like Ireland and Spain just over a decade ago. So, Les Lake, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me once again. Well, it's a bit of a worry, and Saul disagrees with the uh, Treasurer about uh, negative gearing. Well, the government is also quite split now on the issue of allowing first home buyers to dip into their super to buy a home. Uh, One thing for sure, if they allow something like that to happen, it will force up the prices of houses and ultimately it will see more people going on to the pension. Well, yeah, and of course the the consequences down the track for the uh, uh, welfare and the age pension would be dire. It's interesting also Canada had a system like that and it was a disaster. Well, it blew out the budget, something like uh, billions of dollars. Really bad idea. And Leon, now the news. What have you got for us? Well, Gary, Rupert Murdoch has long sought to add Sky, the British satellite news giant, to his stable of global global media outlets that includes movie studios, newspapers and cable networks like Fox News. After the sexual harassment scandal at Fox News that led to the ouster of Roger Ailes, its chairman, and the revelation of several settlements involving Bill O'Reilly and allegations of inappropriate behaviour, Murdoch and 21st Century Fox face renewed scrutiny over their plans to buy the 61% stake in Sky that they don't own. Now, on Friday, European officials gave their blessing to the deal, which is worth 18.5 billion Aussie, but the battle will come to a head when a British regulator, Ofcom, rules next month on whether the proposed deal gives Murdoch, who already controls several national newspapers in Britain, too much clout over the British media landscape. And British officials also must decide if 21st Century Fox and its executives pass a fit and proper test or judgment on whether the people who run the merged company are fit to do so. And that includes particular attention to James Murdoch, one of Murdoch's sons, who is chief executive of 21st Century Fox. And it remains unclear whether British regulators will be influenced by the recent scandals at Fox News, including the accusation that O'Reilly harassed several women. Of course, O'Reilly denies the claim. But these increased focus by British regulators on the actions of 21st century Fox officials comes at a difficult time for the company, and it's also likely to rekindle memories of the phone hacking scandal in Britain and criticism by some of the country's officials of how James Murdoch handled it. And there's a further question. What's the EU nod really worth if Britain, now having given formal notice of Brexit uh, blocks it. Indeed. That's a very good question. Now, 
Former spy boss David Irvine has been put in charge of the Foreign Investment Review Board. Uh, Treasurer Scott Morrison on Saturday announced that the former Director General of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ACO, and the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ASIS, will chair the Foreign Investment Review Board, replacing outgoing Chair Brian Wilson. That will make him responsible for advising the government on foreign investment policy and administration. That includes foreign investment applications. Now, his appointment follows a number of controversial decisions on foreign investment where national security came into play. And that included the 2015 deal that saw the port of Darwin leased to Chinese government-affiliated interests linked to the People's Liberation Army. And the sale triggered concerns over the security implications and drew a rebuke from US government officials. As well it might. So now they've got a former spook in the job. Yeah, well, however you look at it, quite a lot of foreign deals do look a bit murky. So the appointment of that spook is probably a very good idea. Now, business conditions have returned to their best level since the global financial crisis, according to the National Australia Bank Business Survey. Business conditions and trading conditions rose strongly in March to be at the highest level since 2007. The business conditions index jumped five points to 14 index points. That's well above the long run average of five points and is highest level since the global financial crisis. Apart from retail, business conditions are uniformly solid. Uh, The survey showed conditions in the mining sector continued to improve. There's also been an improvement in conditions in the manufacturing and wholesale trade industry. The retail sector, however, is a laggard. It continues to struggle with competition and weak sales continuing to put a downward pressure on prices. At the same time, however, the NAB put a note of caution into the notes with major growth drivers such as LNG exports, commodity prices and housing construction beginning to fade. The latest numbers do look upbeat, but out here in real life Australia, the there's a fair amount of worry about housing prices and the budget and a whole bunch of stuff. There is a real concern uh, that we were discussing with Saul about whether the housing market will tank. Now, the buoyancy in the housing market, meanwhile, might have led to a recovery in consumer confidence. The ANZ Remorn Consumer Confidence Index jumped 3.3% last week, more than reversing the previous week's fall. And that has seen the four-week average climbing 0.4 percentage points to 112.9, in line with the long-term trend. And the survey showed increases across the board. Households' views towards their current finances were up 5.2% to 107, the highest since February. Views about future finances also improved, rising 1.4% to 323.9. And expectations for economic conditions for the next year rose 3.5%, as did expectations for economic conditions in the next five years, up 2.6%. Now, ANZ reckons that a lot of that is because people are seeing the value of their properties increasing. But it's thrown a note of caution in saying that because of unemployment and low wages growth, it's going to continue to weigh on consumer confidence and spending. And ironically, Ironically, housing is about the only part of the economy that's showing any inflation. That's right, indeed. Good point. Now, the Treasurer Scott Morrison has outlined plans hinting the government could provide the superannuation industry with incentives to invest in affordable housing. And it's a mutual obligation superannuation plan for first home buyers, plus tax breaks for downsizing the family home in retirement, and a social housing plan to alleviate rental stress. And the government's also considering introducing stamp duty for property bought overseas. But negative gearing doesn't come to be going anywhere. Morrison has ruled it out, doubling down on his insistence that what he calls mum and dad investors are critical to the housing markets, as 1.3 million Australians own negatively geared investment properties. Now, this blueprint was outlined in a speech he gave to the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute in Melbourne. And the speech is critical because it comes a few weeks before the federal budget, which is expected to contain measures aimed at boosting housing affordability, which is a huge electoral issue. And the budget package all still has to be signed off by the government's expenditure review committee and by cabinet. 
if they don't do something about negative gearing, then house prices are probably going to continue to rise. Well, it's a huge issue, but uh, Morrison has ruled it out so far. I think he's wrong myself, but that's only my view. Well, and that's what Saul Leslie was saying. Now, ratings agency Moody's has forecast a correction of sorts in housing price growth, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. According to CoreLogic Moody's Australian Analytics Home Values Index forecast for 2017, Sydney's strong local economy might boost housing out of activity, but this will slow in 2017. And it predicts that detached housing prices will increase around 7.2% in 2017, and that's significantly lower than the 10.9% gain in 2016. Apartment prices in Sydney are forecast to grow 7.5%, after and that's after a 10% increase in 2016. And Moody's also forecasts a correction in Melbourne, where there's been a slowdown in apartment price rises, suggesting the market's already pricing in greater supply. And it predicts the price of apartments in Melbourne will rise 3.4% compared to 4.6% in 2016. And detached house prices in Melbourne will rise 7% compared to an 11.3% rise in 2016. So a teeny bit of softness appearing. Yeah, but it's still quite, they're quite significant increases nonetheless, I think. Now, investor lending slumped in February. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, lending to investors fell by 5.9% to $12.923 billion in seasonally adjusted terms. That's the biggest fall in nearly two years since September 2015. And I have to say, it will be reassuring for the Reserve Bank of Australia ahead of tougher microprudential measures from the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, intended to rein in property investment. But on the other hand, lending to owner-occupiers fell only 0.5% to 19.997 billion. Yeah, despite pressure from the government on the banks. Now, the CIMIC Group, formerly known as Leighton has announced that its subsidiary Leighton Asia will build the first IKEA store in India and the store will go up in Hyderabad which is 600 kilometres southeast of Mumbai and the $70.4 million contract for Leighton Asia past the Simic Group construction company CPB Contractors covers the delivery of civil and structural works, mechanical, electrical and plumbing services and facade and external works associated with the retail store and warehouse buildings. It will also have to provide more than 40,000 square metres of parking on the 5.2 hectare their site and construction's already commenced and completion is targeted for early 2018. Hyderabad is of course a huge IT centre and it's one of the most prosperous places in India is where the middle class is really growing. 1,500 international firms there employing more than 400,000 people. Well that sounds like a good place to build an IKEA place. And Bangalore which is like it will be next. Budget mobile operator Amasum has surprised investors by snapping up Click Energy for $120 million. And the acquisition is unexpected because it signals a move by the company planned to enter the broadband market mid-2017, says it's going into the energy sector. Now, Amasum says the acquisition accelerates its strategy of what it calls providing multiple services to Australian households and aligns with the vision of becoming the remote control for the smart home. And Amasum sees Click's 136,000 households adding to its existing customer base of about 600,000 households, and that would allow the company to provide customers with multiple products of MBN, mobile, and energy services, generating potential household revenue of $200 a month, and Amazim expects the acquisition will generate net revenues of $215.2 million. Now, that's an amazing deal. Now, Woolworths shareholders are set to launch a class action against the retailer over a profit warning that saw Woolworths shares shedding $4.66 or 13.7% of their value in two days. Class 
class action law firm Morris Blackburn Lawyers, together with the support of global litigation funder IMF Bentham, have opened an online registration portal for aggrieved shareholders to sign up, and the lawyers say the claim could well exceed $100 million. And the profit warning came in February 2015 when the supermarket's giant former chief executive Grant O'Brien slashed the company's full-year profit growth guidance from between 4 and 7%. And Morris Blackburn class action principal Andrew Watson says it's clear Woolworths had known it was significantly behind on its profit projections as early as 2014, and yet it had said nothing to the market until February, maintaining its profit guidance until then and leaving investors in the dark. Finally, Gary, the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has weighed into the controversy surrounding Adani's $21 billion Carmichael coal mine. Uh, During his visit to India, Mr Turnbull had a private meeting with senior Adani executives, including founder and chairman Gautam Adani. And at the meeting, Mr Turnbull reportedly assured Mr Adani that the problems surrounding the native title challenge to the mine would be resolved. And during the meeting, Mr Adani had raised concerns about the federal court decision in February on native title, which had threatened the coal mine giant, as well as other major developments. Now, the government has introduced legislation with the initial support of Labor overturning the court decision, but it's now stuck in the Senate. And Mr Turnbull reportedly told Mr Adani the legislation will pass in May when Parliament resumes for the budget. And his words reportedly were, the issue needs to be fixed and will be fixed. Well, I hate to be uh, downbeat, but I can see some pigs flying. It's going to be very interesting to watch. And that's it for us this week. Uh, we wish you all the best for Easter. And if you want to listen to us again, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. We'll be back next week, next Friday. And next week, we're going to be talking to Adrian Hondros from Porter Davis. In the meantime, take care and we'll talk to you next Friday.